Today's scripture reading is taken from Genesis chapter 36, verses 1 to 8, chapter 37, verses 1 to 11. 36, verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Sibian, the Hivite, and Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Ada bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Basimeth bore Ruel, and Oholibama bore Jeyes, Jena and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother, Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill called country of Seir. Then he, okay, sorry, sorry. Chapter 37, verses 1 to 11, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Sipar his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any others of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and he, when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Verse 10. 
But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. May God help us hear his word. Thanks, Doris, for reading God's Word uh, for us. And uh, good morning, beloved. I'm delighted to be with you this morning as we gather as church. And I know we have some friends and visitors with us this morning. I would also like to welcome you. I pray that your time with us uh, will be a time where you can find encouragement and rest in Jesus Christ. We are still in our sermon series in Genesis titled Generations of Grace. And over the last several weeks, we have seen God's grace in the lives of the forefathers of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Today, the story shifts from Jacob to his son, Joseph, and God's faithfulness in his life. And because we need to rely on God the Spirit to open hearts and ears and eyes, let us pray. Father God, we pray in the words of the psalmist that you open our eyes to the wonderful things in your word. Help us to see your faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus. And in seeing our precious Lord, strengthen our faith. May your Holy Spirit change us to be more and more like Jesus so that we might live lives that will be worthy of the gospel. Lives that bring much spiritual good to others and bring you much glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now my friends, live long enough and you realise that life is no bed of roses. You know, all of humanity, all of us face general suffering that comes from, a live, from living in a fallen, broken world. But Jesus' followers, we face added difficulties as we seek to follow our Lord and Saviour. We face opposition both from the outside and from the inside as Christ's disciples. You know, from the outside, perhaps you seek to keep to your Christian ethics in your workplace and you face opposition from your employers and your colleagues who have no qualms about taking moral shortcuts. Perhaps if you're younger, you're open with your faith with your schoolmates and now you face their dislike as they make fun of you and what you believe. But you also face opposition from the inside. Perhaps you heard the gospel, you trusted and received Jesus Christ, and now you seek to follow Him as His disciple. But now you face objections and resistance from your own family. Or perhaps from within the church, you face opposition as you try to serve the church. You know, instead of church members trying to speak together, work things out and reconcile, you experience gossips and murmurs from those who have decided that no matter what, they will be unhappy with you. You face opposition from both the outside and inside. You feel outrage, anger, fear, anxiety, confusion. Some of us may even feel nostalgia. We feel withdrawal. 
Opposition causes us to feel all these things. And you wonder, where is God amid all this opposition? Last week, we heard how, despite God's people living unfaithfully to Him, God doesn't give up on us. God showed mercy and graciously called Jacob and his family back to battle, where God renames Jacob Israel and reaffirms His promises to Israel. The line of promise is now back in the land of promise. And this takes us to Genesis 36 and 37, the text we'll be looking at today. The story of Jacob concludes with a transition and an introduction to the next generation. And there are two parts for today's message. First, uh, the first part is Genesis 36, where we talk about facing opposition from the outside. And then Genesis 37, where we talk about facing opposition from within. What we see is, amid opposition, God is faithfully working to advance His purposes in the lives of His people. You know, my friends, in traditional Asian culture, knowing your genealogy gives you a sense of identity. You know, your family of descent tells you about your family origin and the relationships and support that you have. You know, in Singapore, it's not so popular now, but in Singapore, clan associations were formed around dialect groups and surnames. And these were essential to support the early Chinese immigrants in the mid-1800s and early 1900s. So basically, if you're Hokkien named Tan, your genealogy will ensure that you receive help from the respective clan association you know, when you arrive to, in Singapore for work. In the Bible, there are lists of genealogies. And we can ask ourselves, why, why genealogies? Why have a list of names? These genealogies, likewise, give us, the reader, the identity of the character in focus and their heritage. In fact, as we were making our way through the book of Genesis, we actually covered eight or out of ten genealogies. And these genealogies, all ten, are introduced by the phrase, these are the generations of. And today, we come to the last two lists of genealogies. Genesis chapter 36, verse 1 and 9, we see the generations of. And in this chapter, it gives us detail of the rejected line. And Genesis 37, verse 2, we also introduced by these are the generations of. And this, in Genesis 37, we focus on the line of promise. Genesis 36, 1 begins with, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. As with the pattern, with the rest of Genesis, the author of Genesis starts first with the rejected line, the offspring of Esau. Esau, if you recall, is the older son of Isaac. And instead of Esau inheriting the birthright and promises, his younger brother Jacob was chosen instead. Esau and his line, they were rejected. And chapter 36 gives Esau's genealogy. Uh, verses 1 to 8, which we heard read, gives us an introduction to this list of genealogy. And we see in the first list, from verses 1 to 5, it tells us of Esau's immediate family, in particular his wives and sons. We see that Esau had three Canaanite wives, 
Ada, Oholibama, and Besimoth. And these wives bore him altogether five sons, Eliphaz, Ruel, Joash, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now Esau living in the land of promise, being associated with the line of promise, Esau and his family prospered in the land of Canaan. And you see that Esau ended up with many, many members in his household. He, abundant, he had abundant livestock and much property. And what happened is that Esau's prospering led to competition with Jacob for resources. We see this being elaborated in verse 7. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Esau and Jacob could not dwell together in the land because of the large number of livestock that they had. And this recalls a situation between Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13. And this foreshadows eventually the conflict between Edom and Israel as they too competed for resources in the land. As a result, Esau took his family and separated from Jacob. He departed the land of the promise and settled in the south, in the hill country of Seir. You know, one of the ways to better understand a biblical text, especially biblical narratives, is to look for what we call editorial inserts. Okay? So the author of Genesis, Moses, as he writes, sometimes he'll write things and insert it in brackets as seen in your Bibles. So the author of Genesis tells us that Esau is Edom. So this gives us additional piece of information. And we see this in verses 1 and 8 of the introduction that we read. But the thing is this, as you scroll down this whole genealogy, this is repeated again in verses 19 and 43. Words and phrases are repeated, especially in the Old Testament for emphasis. So the idea that Esau is Edom is repeated four times in this chapter to indicate to us that Esau is Edom is important. Why? Why is this important? Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that Moses wrote these five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, after the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, and the Israelites were wandering in a desert or just about to enter the promised land when they received these words, the words that Moses wrote. And in their journey to the promised land, in their journey to the promised land, the Israelites actually met Edom. And this account of their meeting was recorded for us in Numbers chapter 20, verses 17 to 20. So as they received these words from Moses' five books, fresh in their minds is the account of Numbers chapter 20, verse 17 to 20. And there we see that the Edomites opposed the Israelites and refused them passage across their land. When the Israelites attempted to cross the land of Edom as they journeyed to Canaan, verse 20 tells us, and Edom came out against them, the Israelites, with a large army and a strong force. Though Edom and Israel were distant kinsmen, their history was marked by competition for resources and they fought wars with one another. And this is no surprise because their interactions follow the biblical pattern. When the woman's offspring in Genesis 3.15, the promised line, 
fights and contends with the serpent's offspring, the rejected line. Israel faced external opposition, outside opposition from Edom. You know, it's one thing to face opposition, but another when you face opposition and enmity from strong opponents. And the rest of chapter 36 tells us of the rise to power of the descendants of Esau. Very quickly, we'll see that nine, verses 9 to 14, they describes to us the many descendants of the sons of Esau. And verses 15 to 19, it lists the many tribal chiefs that number among the descendants of Esau in the land, in the country of Edom. You know, verse 20 tells us these. And then in verse 20, we're introduced to Seir, the Horite, uh, the inhabitants of the land. So what happens now is the, the genealogy now lists the people and their descendants and their chiefs from the land around Seir. These were the non-Edomites. And these people continued to live alongside Esau's descendant. But later they were outcompeted and assimilated by Edom as Edom continued to rise in power. And over time, the Edomites' tribal chiefs increased their territory and influence and they became kings. And we see this in verses 31 to 39. You know, little else is written or known about these Edomite kings. It seems that different leaders arose at different times and ruled different cities. And finally, we see in verses 40 to 43, it gives us a summary kind of appendix that overlaps with the previous list of Esau's descendants. What is clear from the genealogy of Esau is this, that the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, prospered and became powerful. They ruled cities bordering the south of the Promised Land in the land of Seir. They were a strong opposition to the Israelites. And Edom continued to cause trouble in the nation of Israel, even after Israel settled in the Promised Land. Ezekiel 25 verses 12 to 14 tells us a prophecy that the prophet made against Edom. It tells us that Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah. And in judgment, God will stretch out his hand against Edom. Eventually, one of the prophets, which we call the minor prophets, Obadiah, prophesied the final judgment against Edom. Edom will be judged and cut off by God. But amid God's judgment, Obadiah 21 writes, Saviors will go out to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. One day, Edom will be under the rule of Israel, but it will be a saving rule. Beloved, as we look at this text, when we face outside opposition, powerful outside opposition, however strong, they are still under God's rule and control. All things, even outside opposition, will be subject to the rule of God's deliverer king. Jesus Christ is God's deliverer king. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus rules as king and is in control of all opposition, no matter how strong they appear. Now we hear that Esau belongs to the rejected line. Yet, we can look forward to the day of ultimate reconciliation, when those who long rejected the gospel will find mercy. Jesus is both king and deliverer. At the cross, he dies in our place, bearing our sin. 
he was forsaken and rejected at the cross so that all who trust him will not be rejected but will be brought under his good kingly rule. There will come a final day where in Revelation 7, 9, it describes that glorious, wonderful day. A great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, they will stand before the throne and the Lamb. The Edomites one day will be reincorporated back into the people of God. Beloved, when faced with outside opposition, we need to continue to remind ourselves that God is in control. He rules over this situation. Amid opposition, God is still working faithfully to advance His purposes in your lives and mine. You know, God providentially works for my good in all things, even amid opposition. And how, and let this truth from Scripture percolate in your hearts and marinate your hearts. And, ask, and remind yourself, how, how does this truth encourage my heart? You, know, you seek to keep the Christian ethics in your workplace and you face opposition from employers and colleagues who have no qualms about taking moral shortcuts. Stand firm. Trust that amid external opposition, God is working for your good. Perhaps God is shaping your character and strengthening your integrity. You know, I speak to those in schools, you open your faith with your schoolmates. As we, as we talked about in, in, earlier, you face their dislike and their mocking as they make fun of you and what you believe. Be encouraged. God is working for your good. Perhaps God is deepening your faith in Him. And in both situations, God is growing your dependence on Him and drawing you in a closer relationship with Him. Beloved, be encouraged. That God is in control of outside opposition. Through that, He is working for your good to advance His purposes in you. Amid opposition, trust the good and sovereign hand of God. You know, we often heard that hindsight is twenty twenty. The meaning of this, uh, this common saying is, that full knowledge and complete understanding of an event comes after it has happened. You know, I was always like to say that, you know, I, I would like to say that I always handle facing opposition well, but that has not always been the case. You know, as I face opposition, I get overwhelmed, I feel anger, fear, anxiety, and in my confusion, my natural tendency towards my idol of comfort is I tend towards withdrawal from the situation. In the midst of all that, I question where is God in the midst of my troubles. But hindsight is twenty twenty. I've learned that the apparent hiddenness of God does not indicate the uncaring absence of God. Let me repeat that. I learned that the apparent hiddenness of God does not indicate the uncaring absence of God. And we see this in the text in Genesis 37 as we now focus on the promised line. God is not mentioned once in chapter 37, but behind the manipulations and machinations of Joseph's brother, God is still good and sovereign. His good and sovereign hand is behind and over all the events of Genesis 37. 
You know, Genesis 37 begins with the last, the generations of, and brings focus on the descendants of Jacob, the line of promise. So the first uh, one and a half verses tells us that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Jacob's descendants dwell in Canaan. They remain in the land of promise. And this serves as a contrast to Esau's descendants who left the land of promise and settled in Seir. And the first 11 verses that was read for us serves as an introduction to this book, Genesis' final section, which stretches from 37 to 50. Though Jacob is not in the foreground in the story, he is everywhere in the background. In the foreground is the character of Joseph. These remaining chapters are then often called Joseph's story. And over all this in the story, though not specifically mentioned in many places, is God's providential hand. God's providential hand is over all the story. So we see the story narrows and focuses on Joseph. I will not reread uh, verses 2 to 11, but follow with me in a passage as this section introduces many of the themes that develop further in Joseph's story. The opening of Joseph's story sets the stage for his entire story. Joseph receives preferential treatment from his father. You know, he gets this special, unique clothing garment from his father in verse 3. And this robe that was given to him, this robe of many colours, was probably a really splendor, ornate robe that seems to indicate royal status. And Joseph also had two dreams in this first 11 verses of being raised to some kind of royalty. And this caused his brothers, who were really jealous that the father gave him preferential treatment, to be even more jealous of him. And they end up selling Joseph into slavery, deceiving their father into thinking that a wild animal killed Joseph. And what are we to make of Joseph and his dreams? You know, some commentators seem to think that Joseph was a tattletale. You know, he brought a bad report to his father of his brothers. Okay? And that was, he was prideful, that he related his dream so that he could one-up his brother. But as I studied this text, uh, as I, I look at the different um, biblical evidence and, and commentators, I am now more inclined to follow other commentators who see Joseph as righteous. He tells on his brothers in verse 2 because he was genuinely morally indignant about his brother's wrongdoings and he wanted to do something about it, wanted to correct it. And in the Old Testament, we, we know that God sometimes communicates to his people through dreams. And Joseph himself later affirms the dreams and their interpretation that he had comes from God. So what did Joseph did was not arrogant, but instead he accurately told his brother and family what God had revealed to him through his dreams. Joseph, two dreams of royal elevation, recalls the promises of, made to Abraham of Abraham's descendants, blessing the nations and producing kings, Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. And the dreams now become the engine or the main driver that drives the entire Joseph story, just as God's messages to Abraham and Rebekah at the beginning of the previous stories move those accounts. And we see that Joseph's two dreams serves further to antagonize his brothers. Joseph's first dreams about the wheat sheaves foreshadow his later time 
in Egypt in gathering the wheat for the world. His second dream about sun, moon and stars bowing before him intensifies and confirms the meaning of the first. Joseph will rise to become a ruler who will reign over his family. These dreams, these two dreams, it will eventually come true as we continue in the story of Joseph. But only after Joseph undergoes a furry trial of suffering. And we see that in the central theme of Joseph's story is this story that of an Israelite becoming a world ruler who blesses the world. The earlier theme of the promise of offspring, land, blessings and relationship by God developed and accumulates in the life of Joseph. It develops against significant obstacles. And the obstacle here we see is not infertility on the part of the women as seen in the case of Sarah, but sin on the part of men. Joseph faced both internal and external opposition. The obstacles of being of exile in a foreign land, worldwide drought, human opposition and alienation. And specifically in chapter 37, he faced opposition and scheming from within the promised family. Despite all this suffering, God's word triumphs. Who would believe that Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, will become a world ruler and the agent of rescue, deliverance, forgiveness and reconciliation? Because behind this story, God is faithfully working to advance his purposes in the lives of his people. Joseph's story continues in verses 12 and 17, detailing his brother's opposition to him and their brother's many schemes. Now his brother went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So they sent him, so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And the man found him wandering the field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are, are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Doton. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Doton. Jacob sends Joseph on a three days journey from Bethel to Shechem to check on his brothers. And then a man there tells him that they have departed for Doton, a day's journey northwest, as you can see on the map. This location is near one of the major trade routes, and this is highway by the sea, uh, went down all the way to Egypt. Joseph went to Doton and found his brothers and his brothers were far from happy to see him. And we see this in verses 18 to 22. They, Joseph's brothers, saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the, one of the pits. There, then we can say that the fierce animal had devoured him. And we will see what become of his dreams. They were trying to commit the same sin as Cain, that of murder of the brother. But when Reuben heard it, 
he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. When Joseph's brother see him from the distance, rather than welcoming him, they consider it a chance to finally end all his dreams by killing him. They said, then we will see what become of his dreams. But the irony is this, because the rest of the story becomes a development uh, as we see God's advancing his purposes as Joseph's dreams comes to pass. Reuben, driven by his responsibility as the eldest son to ensure his family welfare, he intervenes to save Joseph. Perhaps Reuben's conscience convicted him not to harm his younger brother. Reuben wanted to rescue Joseph and reunite him with his father. Joseph arrives unaware of the plans the brother had for him, and his brothers put their schemes into play. So when Joseph came to his brother, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh and on their way to, to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite trader passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's rope and slaughtered a goat and dipped the rope in the blood. Joseph reaches his brothers and faces opposition from within his own family. He faced a hostile intent as his brothers stripped off his clothes and tossed him into a pit. Now the brothers wanted him to leave him to die of hunger, thirst and exposure to the elements or even be killed by wild animals. And the amazing thing is this, we see in verse 25. It tells us, Then they, meaning the brothers, sat down to eat. Can you imagine the callousness in your hearts? As they were eating, they were probably within earshot of Joseph. And Joseph, now at the bottom of the pit, will likely be going, Okay guys, ha ha, you know, quit joking here. You know, uh, you know the, your, your joke is funny, but please get me out of here. And as he waited, Joseph went from asking to pleading. He pleads, please get me out of here. Getting increasingly scared and desperate as his voice becomes a plaintive cry. Yet his brothers ignore his cries. Traders heading south to Egypt appear as they wait. And Judah gets the idea of making a profit from his, profit from his brother's death by selling him for 20 shekels. The price of a slave at this time in the Asian Near East was about 20 shekels. So they decide to sell Joseph into slavery to these traders who were going down to Egypt. But during the transaction when Joseph was sold into slavery, Reuben was absent. And when he returns, 
Reuben is so upset that he will bear the weight of responsibility for the loss of Joseph. And the brothers, attempting to cover their deed and deceive their father, killed a goat, splattering his blood on Joseph's torn robe. Just as Jacob deceived his father before him by killing a goat and wearing goat's hair, his sons will similarly kill a goat to now deceive him. The brothers finally return to the father, Jacob, and we see this in the final verses of this chapter. They sent the robes of many colours and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Benanites had sold him, Joseph, to e in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. We see Joseph's brother returning and they put their schemes into action. Their, their deception works perfectly. They heartlessly cause their father to think that he lost his favourite son. Joseph, Jacob grieves and laments and declares that he will mourn and weep until he joins his sons in the grave, expressing his deep love and affection for Joseph. And the story ends with Joseph weeping, uh, sorry, with uh, Jacob weeping and with Joseph being sold to an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. Joseph is now a slave in Egypt. He's alone, far from home and family. Chapter 37 ends almost with the idea that we see here that the opposition has won or has it. Now, even though evil was meant against Joseph, God meant it for good to bring about his purposes for his people. Joseph recognized this near the end of his story in Genesis 50 20. And on hindsight, as he reflected backward on his own story, he could see God's hand was behind it all. That the suffering and opposition that he faced serves to accomplish God's purposes. After all, he's now in Egypt, the land where he'll be raised to royalty uh, and from there save his, not only his family, but be a blessing uh, to the rest of the nations around Egypt. The Apostle Peter in Acts 4, 27-28 also recognises that opposition can serve God's purposes. Because he writes this, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, these gathered to oppose Jesus Christ. And in doing so, all these opponents, they did whatever God's hand and the plan God had predestined to take place. Beloved, this testimony of both the Old and New Testament, that God is in control, not only of the opponents to Jesus, He's in control of our opponents from without and from within. You know, the theological term for God's hidden hand at work uh, and control of all things is called divine providence. And I'd like to quote from the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, it, it's a good summary of this idea of what providence is. So question, what do you understand by the providence of God? And this is what the Catechism tells us. The almighty everywhere present power of God, whereby 
as it were by His hand. He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them, that herds and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. Divine providence tells us, it's not like God going, oops, you know, what's going on here? You know? Something happened, I didn't expect that, you know, my bad. God's divine providence is over all. His good and sovereign hand is in control of all things, including the opponents that we face. So beloved, ask yourself, God providentially works for our good in all things, even amid opposition from within. How does this truth encourage my heart? You know, you heard the gospel, you trusted and received Jesus Christ. I speak to some of you among us. You seek to follow Him as His disciples. But now you face objections and resistance from your family. As you struggle with this, not knowing the following steps to take, trust that God has got you in this and hold fast to Jesus. You face opposition as you serve the church from within the church. Perhaps God is using your opponent's feedback to grow you to Christ-likeness. So stand firm and be kind. Perhaps God will use your persevering kindness to win reconciliation. But one other thing, beloved, as I speak to those of us in the church, remember that everything that happens in the past is under God's loving control. And what matters right now is how we respond to our past opponents. Will you seek reconciliation with your fellow church member? Beloved, you know, as we read the biblical narratives, we tend to see ourselves as heroes in the narrative. You know, when I was younger and I heard Sunday school stories of uh, stories like, you know, David versus uh, the giant, I tend to think of myself as the hero. But in truth, we behave more like the Edomites and Joseph brother. We oppose what is righteous, we oppose God. No, we deserve God's judgment and we all need to go before God in repentance. You know, the pattern of the persecution of the righteous Joseph by his brothers set up a pattern of how the righteous suffer opposition. And Stephen picks this up in Acts 7. In Acts 7, he tells us, tells the, 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 his listeners how many righteous servants of God face opposition from the people of God in the history of Israel. Of course, these righteous men, they were not perfect. Instead, they pointed the, to the only truly righteous one, Jesus Christ. So my non-Christian friends, I'm speaking to you right now. Perhaps you have acknowledged that you have been standing in opposition to God and His righteousness in your unbelief. But there is good news for you. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Trust that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the truly righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous, so that we will not be rejected by God. But instead, just as Christ was made alive, we too will be made alive and brought to God. 
confess and declare your need for Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. But it's not just uh, my non-Christian friends I'm speaking to. If this is your uh, desire, you can speak to us, uh, your friends who have brought you or to the pastors and elders after this church service. But besides my non-Christian friends, I want to speak to those uh, Christians among us. You know, beloved, we also need to admit that we continually uh, oppose God. We, as we choose to go our own ways in our sin, as we continue to pursue our sin habits and our idols in our lives. So likewise, we too need to be continual repenters, confessing our sins in the many ways we oppose God. Finally, as we draw uh, this passage to an end, you know, beloved, the Apostle John records Jesus' words to us in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, at his death on the cross and his resurrection, has already overcome the ultimate opponents, Satan's sin and death. So amid tribulations and oppositions that we face, we can trust in the good and sovereign hand of God. Beloved, ask yourselves, in what areas of my life I have to trust in God's good and sovereign hand? You know, the Bible scholar Sidney Gradanus reminds us, and we will close with this, the story of Joseph offers us comfort in difficult times. God is not absent. He's quietly at work behind the scenes to accomplish His purposes. God can work out His plan of salvation even through the wrongdoings we experience. Even when evil seems to rule the day, God is in control. God can use sinful human deeds to accomplish His plan of salvation. And all of God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You are a good and sovereign God, that amid opposition, You are faithfully working to advance Your purposes in our lives. Thank You for Your faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, whom we find rescue and forgiveness of sins, who will never reject us if we go to Him in faith. Help us to trust and rest in Your providential and loving hand that indeed, when our opponents, opponents meant evil towards us, you meant it for our good. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.